0: My guest today is someone who has devoted their life to motorsport and as we'll explore so much more. Born into a family heavily involved in the automotive industry, he was perhaps destined for a career in the glamorous, some might say Byzantine world of racing. That career started on the track and although he retired from competitive racing at the tender age of 25, his journey was really only beginning. In 1997, he founded his own racing team, Arden International, quite literally from scratch, eventually leading them to three consecutive Formula 3000 titles between 2002 and 2004. Only a year later, he graduated to the pinnacle of motorsport by becoming the youngest team principal in the history of Formula One when appointed team leader of the newly formed Red Bull Racing Team. He was 31. Some 18 years later, He's still there and the results speak for themselves, as well as overseeing the fast expansion of the Red Bull racing portfolio. He has delivered five Formula One World Constructors Championship titles. This year, they're back and leading the pack again. And he won't like me saying this, but look destined to make it six. Please welcome Motorsport Supremo, Christian Horner. Christian, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm quite blushy with that intro. Well, no, I mean, you, you, listen, I, I was told by an old history lecturer of mine at Loughborough University that we only ever reach uh, perfection on our CV, but yours is a – I don't know actually quite where to start with your CV because actually the more you get into it, the more I realise that we've got scope for the conversation. But actually my first question is, Coventry City, are they going to make the playoffs? I, I sincerely hope so. Um, you know, obviously as a Coventry fan um, – I'm, I'm rooting for them. Um, my grandfather was involved in the, in the club years and years ago. So we were, uh, almost, it was, it was embedded in us to be Coventry City fans. Although I must have been, I've not been to a game in probably about 25 years. You are a local boy there. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I was born just up the road in Lemmington Spa from Coventry and, and, uh, went to school at Warwick, uh, again, locally. And so, uh, so yeah, very much a local boys in that area. Look, I um, I know the listeners are going to be desperate to hear about Red Bull, the Cutman Thrust, the Machinations, of Formula One, and I promise them I'll get there uh, as soon as I can. But I like these opportunities to really slightly get behind uh, the person that I'm talking to. And it's always been my view. I guess it's sort of quintessentially the human condition to be shaped by... A combination of landscape, geography, family, friends, education, and uh, when I go through that list and try and sort of fit it in to your lustrous CV and all your achievements, there is one thing that stands out to me, and that is family. And family matters to you, doesn't it? Oh, family is very much, imp- you're know, very very important. I I grew up in a close knit family. I'm the middle of uh you know, son of three boys um and you know family uh you know was everything growing up you know we were brought up with um you know with 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 key principles and uh, you know our parents you know they were always very encouraging to to you know follow your follow your dreams and never never um yeah you know, they encouraged us to 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 Go out of your comfort zone, um, and uh, it, we're, we're tremendously, tremendously supportive. Yeah, um, uh, you know, brutally honest at times, uh, particularly my mother. Um, but uh, yeah, they were, they, you know, family life for me. I grew up in a in a it, it, in a very happy family environment. You know, we're still a close family today, and and it's those values that I n- now have embedded in my family. Uh, and it's it's funny how those things just. You know, pass on through, through different generations. I guess your father um, was actually one. Well, he was your supporter, your partner in the Arden International. You, you know, your racing team. Your grandfather was, I think, yeah. I'm right in saying, was uh, involved in Standard. Uh, That's right. Standard I like, Yeah. What? What? Way? Way back. And and I relate to this uh, in a in a sort of modest way. It was my father was my coach. Right and you know there were you know there were moments and you you referred to your mother my my mother used to sit at the dining room table whenever the conversation went into athletics with my sisters and my brother and just they always started with a a, a chanted a chorus of boring boring and we soon changed the subject and went went back to family line but actually i've always sensed that families uh, in the background are the balance that allows often achievers to do what they do. No, absolutely. And, and you see, I found something that that I had in common with my father. My father, uh, you know, grew up in the in, in the motor industry um, in the supply chain, basically in the in the midlers where when when Britain had a motor industry, and obviously his father before him, and and you know they had a passion for cars, uh, and and they had a passion for. For motorsport. So actually, I think my father as a as a teenager actually did some marshalling at the at Silverstone at different club races. Um and but it was it was my mother that you know when I, I got to sort of about twelve years of age, I was I was always fascinated by speed. And whether it was evil Knievel evil or a motorbike or the Dukes of Hazard or whatever, I I just was absolutely fascinated by speed um and would always be making ramps in the garden or you know timing people down the back hill in the village that we lived on our bikes um and and this uh go-kart um came a, a, up in a local paper um and i pushed and pushed my father said no 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 it's, it's ridiculous and you know, where would we run it and this that and, the other. and it was actually my mother um that uh you know, agreed to uh, to buy this thing for for me for my 12th, 12th birthday, and it was absolute wreck. Um, but we we basically took it to a, a car park up the road, and suddenly just the smell and the power of the engine, of driving this machine. Um, that uh, you know, my father remembered that there was a go car track not far from Banbury called Shellington, and and we took this thing out there, and then just realised what a heap of rubbish that we'd actually got. But it was. It was good enough for me to you know to get going and suddenly discover this there was this racing world and race these things and and so on and that's that's where it all started at a at, at a pretty young age for me You graduated from Go kart into you know on yeah. the other racetrack, but you called it a day at the age of twenty five was that a recognition about your own limitation or was it an ambition? To do what you are currently be doing was I'm fascinated. That's that's quite an early transition. Yeah, the, the earliest transition I can think of in my own sport was Herb Elliott, who won everything, uh, retired at the age of 21. And I said to him, "Why did you retire?" He said, "I couldn't stand the thought of losing." Was he never lost? He said, "I don't know how that would have affected the rest of my life." I'm fascinated at the age of 25 that you made that judgment. Well, unfortunately, I wasn't like Herb, um, but. Uh... Yeah, look, I, I grew up in racing and and you know racing is an expensive business and I had to go out and find the sponsorship and 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 generate the funding and, and and so on. And in order to progress initially my own career, um with a budget that I had, rather than going to the back of the grid team, I thought, you know what? I might as well buy a car and employ an engineer and and do this Myself, right, and at least I've got some an asset at the, you know, at the end of it rather than some photographs and a set of overalls. So, so that was how it started. I I created the team, um, in order to further my own driving career initially, um, and at the level of effectively Formula Two, um, and the the level of competition at the understudy of Formula One. It's so high. And I was bracing against guys like Juan Pablo Montoya and Tom Christensen. And, you know, some, some really. Um, I, mean, he, I think I read that you said that you've actually you followed Montoya into a bend and realized yeah, that this, he, he was showing a commitment that you just weren't prepared to give. I think as the cars, as you go through the form, as the cars become ever more powerful and, and the risk becomes ever greater, and you become more acutely aware of that. I remember coming out of the pit lane in Estoril and when Pablo Bontoya just passing me into what was a very quick right-hand corner at the end of the straight, where the guardrail was literally metres from the outside of the circuit. So if you're going to have an accident, it was it was going to be like a small aircraft shunt. Um And I just remember seeing him commit to this corner, and the rear wheel rim is trying to pop outside of the, the rear tyre, and he was absolutely, totally committed. and I, I just was honest with myself. I thought, you know I my head and my heart are not connected. Uh, I I I can't do that. Um, and no matter how much I want to, your achievements on the track were more than were more than modest. They thought there's there's lots of good drivers, and I, they weren't good enough to go and and um, you know succeed in in Formula One, which was you know had been my ambition. So I thought, do you know what? I, I don't want to go to university. I'd agree with my parents to take effectively a year out, which essentially I'm still old. Um, and um, ba- basically, I thought, you, I've, I've created this team, um, this little team. I want to run this team how I would like to have driven for a team. And I'm going to use all of that experience I've had driving for good teams and not so good teams. And it, at the end of the day, it all boiled down to the people. Um, and, and so I decided that, that I wanted to make a career in motorsport. It was something I was passionate about, that I loved. And I enjoyed, um, and uh, that was that was it. So, I, so at the end of 1998, I stepped out of the car, and the next week we're testing young drivers, and that was in the Arden years. That was in that was in the Arden years. So, uh, um, yeah, well, we had some great young talent, and and it was a, again, it was an education to me because it was having to walk a mile in in. in each person's shoes effectively, I was booking hotels, I was doing the VAT But so You must have sat at the heart of everything. At everything, I was washing the trucks, I was, the you know, doing... it was a great education for me. Um, but even with a team, you know, at that stage of sort of 12 or 13 people, it was about getting them to work together collectively as a team, to work for each other, to work as, you know, for one common goal and to be the best that we could be. We didn't have the budget, but, why should that stop us? You know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll just go out there and do things, things, things differently. And, and bit by bit, I build that, that team up to the point that it won consecutive championships between 2002 and 2004. Do you think those were your really seismic formative years in management? Is that really how, where you, you know, the shaped you know, the, your style, your approach? Yeah, very much so because I, you know, I, I I learned a lot. I had nothing to lose. I had no 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 family or the responsibilities at that time. So the risks that I was taking were were uh, were pretty significant. And you know, you're living from hand to mouth. And so in order to put competitive drivers in the car, that inevitably didn't have budgets. It was like a question of okay, you know, how can we? Uh, you yeah, know, how can I make this this work? And so um, it was a matter of uh, you know, doing a huge amount of of, of sales, of being innovative, of making two seater Formula Two cars for sponsors and customers and so on. Um, and uh, yeah, it taught it taught me a great deal about business, about working with people, and about making tough decisions. You take Ardmur as far as you think you can take them. Yeah. And in two thousand and five, you make the really the really big leap. Uh, you know, which is to Red Bull? Uh, that that is a huge jump. I mean that you know in, in in sort of you know common footballing terms, that's sort of coming out of League One and into the Premiership. How did you find that? I'm interested in two things. How did you actually find that step change? And what? It, I'm, I'm also interested. What is it? What was it at Red Bull that they saw in you that thought? you had the potential to take this team to where you've currently taken it. You know, we're talking about, you know, five Constructors' Titles, six Drivers' Championships, and I know more to come. But that it's, it's easy to look at a CV and go, well, it was 97, then it was 2005. But that is one big jump. No, it was huge. And, look, I'd been racing in Formula 2, had won that championship, as I said, three years in a row. One of the teams I'd been competing against was Helmut Larko's team, who was looking after the Red Bull Junior program. And then I ended up running, he, he he sold his team to look after just the junior drivers. And I ended up agreeing a deal with him to run a young driver, Italian driver, with Antonio Liuzzi, Um And, uh, you know, again, won the championship in 2004 with him. And at that stage, I was looking at taking the Arden team into Formula One. And Bernie Eccleston was pushing me hard. I think he... He wanted a solution for Eddie Jordan's team. He was pushing me to get involved in that. I, I managed to find some funding. Um, but he, the more due diligence I did, the more complicated the deal became. Um, but Bernie, you know, I think he, it, at that stage, my relationship really, you know, really started with him. And, um, you know, through Helmut and through competing against him and having run his young drivers, when when Red Bull were looking at, acquiring a team it was do they acquire the Jordan team or do they acquire Jaguar and the Jaguar deal was just a much cleaner deal and um so they they went ahead and, and and acquired the company in November 2004 and within about a month, um yeah Helmut rang me and said look Dietrich wants to change the management within um within Red Bull Racing um why don't you come over and have a chat so I went over uh, at the end of 2004 to Salzburg, I sat down with, with Dietrich and, uh, and it was clear his passion and, you know, he just didn't want to take part in Formula One. he wanted to compete and he wanted to do it differently. And he wanted to do it the rebel way in that it was fun and it was full of energy and, and it was youthful. Um, and basically he offered me the deal to come and run the team and, uh, you know, it was a huge shaman Uh, And he offered me a very modest retainer, but he said, look, Jaguar scored nine points uh, in 2004. If we score 11 points this year, that will be a great result. Um, And so he said, and I'll pay you per point uh, that we score. Um, And And that's 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 incentive management. Yes. So we, we turned up in Australia for the first race with David Coulthard and Christian Clean, and they... They finished 4th and 6th, which at the time gave us about 7 or 8 points in one race. Um, so uh, the reason I was hugging David so so passionately after the race was not just because of the result, but because of fiscally what it meant um, you know, <laughs> as well. And that season, we went on to score 34 points um, by just, just trying to run it as a racer. But it was a huge step. You know, turning up as a 31-year-old, um, you know, 4-1-1 doesn't tend to look outside of its own boundaries and so there I was walking into a into a factory with a change of management that had been announced that morning on I think January the 7th 2004 um and uh yeah I walked into this office where the previous uh management had been there was there was a half-drunk cup of coffee and some some unopened Christmas cards that were on on his desk and and uh, and I said, right, well, we're off. Um, good luck. Uh, and, uh, and that was it. And it was a question then of getting out and trying to, you know, meeting the people and understanding the business. And what was clear to me early on was that the team, because it had, had a succession of rotating management, it was just, just pockets of, of. Uh, it wasn't a team. It was just different silos within a a team not working collectively, and it was a question of understanding. Well, what do we need to drive this forward? And what did it need? Well, the thing it primarily needed was just some direction and leadership, and getting them to work as a team. and And I think technically, um, it was clear that we were, uh, you know, that we were very, very weak uh, in terms of technical direction. That everybody had opinions, but there was no conductor of the technical orchestra. And I'd always been a huge fan of uh of Adrian Newey. Uh we grew up in a similar area. Uh he's a few years older than I am. But um I I'd been a fan of his cars for when he designed Leighton Houses and I was driving in, in go-karts at the time and, and and you know met him there and then when he went to Williams and Nigel Mansell with the success that he had and then you know following on through into McLaren and and of course David Coulthard had been a common point with um, with Adrian through his William time and McLaren, so I sat down with David and said, "Right, uh, you know, Adrian's the guy that that we need. How do we go about it?" and He said, "Right, well, I'll arrange a dinner. Um, his wife is a key component in this. I'll look after her. You chat to Adrian, huh. uh, um, and that's uh, and so we met at the Bluebird on the King's Road, and we had a, you know, we had a great dinner, and 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 I just clicked with Adrian. We just hit it off, and it was in life. You, you, you meet people that you just you have a commonality and a connection with, and um, and that's where it started. And I managed to convince him to come and come and join the team in time for two thousand six. That you you mentioned Williams, and actually, you, you may well know. I actually had a very very close friendship with Frank Williams, and it went out It it was an an odd genesis because what most people don't know is that Frank. Loved motor racing, but his fat, his passion was track and fiddle. 100%. And he used to go on these punishing runs. I remember being with him, I think it was the European Grand Prix in Hoppenheim in 85, and I think both his drivers had left the track fairly early for whatever reason. And he said, come on, we're we going for a run. I'd already run that day. I mean, we had the most punishing run across... I mean, he just ran anywhere. It was across German farmland. He didn't really matter where it was. He trespassed all over the place. I was absolutely knackered uh, at the end of it, and actually, I do remember laughing because just before that run, he'd sat down with two of the drivers who were at each other's throats, and I, I'm, I, I'm, I want to say it was, it was. Uh, I think Nelson was one of them, and he, I, I was interested in the psychology because they were really very, very competitive, and is the final team talk in that motorhome was. Do whatever you want, but don't fucking damage my cars. What's the what? What is your approach? I'm interested. Having having witnessed that, what is your approach to? I mean, being a team principal is probably as much about being an in-house psychologist most of the time, and working with the extraordinary talent, the ambitions, the insecurities, and and sometimes the egos, because you need that kind of ego to be able to to do what you want and, and to do, do it the way that, you know, we all uh, look at in an in you know, exultory way. But what is your approach to that? I think it's, it's fundamentally put pretty similar right. in that you've got two drivers and and they are contractors to the team. But, of course, we've got two championships, the constructors' championship that means everything to the team and the drivers' championship that means everything to the driver. And and sometimes they're in conflict with each other. Um, and, and I think the most important thing, and with across the whole variance of drivers that we've had over the years that I've seen, is just to be up front and try and deal things in an open manner, you know, above the table and, and have the difficult conversations, you know, up front of what, what's expected, that they're not just driving for themselves. They're driving, you know, in a set of Red Bull overalls. They're representing all the hopes of, you know, the, the, the 1,500 people within our, our team and companies, that have all the partners, the shareholders, it's not just themselves that they're, that they're representing. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you end up in, sometimes with, you know, conflict between your drivers. But I think the most important thing as a team is to play with a straight bat, to treat them equally and say, look, it's down to what you guys, we don't have a number one driver. Our number one driver who is, is, who is ever ahead on the circuit. And you earn that by what you do on the circuit, um, not through a contract, um, and that's the way we've, you know, we've we've always operated. Look, outside of those who've driven for you, uh, who would you have loved to have seen that didn't drive for you in your cockpit? It's a few. I mean, I, over the years that I would have liked to see. I think Montoya underperformed in Formula One. I think he was a, a wonderfully talented driver that should have achieved more there was a driver that 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 um i tested in 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 the Arden team that i again thought was a phenomenal driver that four well missed there was a chap called tom christensen that went on to enjoy tremendous success in 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 sports cars um and and yeah this is there's so many great talents that 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 you see um you know come through uh, but uh they're all different you know they all have their own their own personalities, their own traits. Uh, but you know, with the good guys, there there is that same steely, ruthless determination. Um that they uh, you know, that they all share that I see in Max, I saw in you know, in Sebastian obviously before him and uh, uh it's that last little bit that they're prepared to go that that little bit further. Well what interests me and we'll get on to um you know, drive to survive, which obviously you'll have been asked a thousand times. I'm not going to dwell on that for too long. But what does occur to me as somebody who, you know, is normally responsible for another sport is that I would say to the young competitors, look, you know, your your performance is your passport, but you need to have personality. You need to be able to sell you you need to be able to sell by implication your brand the team and you need to be able to communicate to people who may not be remotely interested in your sport but you have the ability to connect particularly with younger people it does strike me that there is there is a breed of young driver out there that really either by training a little bit of tuition or instinctively is doing that probably better than almost any generation before I think yeah, exactly. We've got a generation that are coming through um, that are phenomenal because they've grown up in an environment where, you know, through their casting days and their formative days, in a in an environment where they're engaging uh, in social media, digital media, and online gaming, and they're just living in a world that was different to, you know, the generation before. So when I look at a Max Verstappen or Orlando Norris or a George Russell or a Charles Leclerc or an Alex Albot. You know, they're all they've all got the ability to communicate well uh and eloquently. Um they've got personality. Um and and I think that's a big contributing factor to the to the popularity of the sport, that they're not afraid to be their own people either. Um, you know, they've got an opinion, they express it. And I think that That's something at Red Bull that we've always encouraged. We've never wanted drivers to be vanilla, that, you know, so long as they're not slagging off the brand or the partners, they've got freedom of speech. They've got freedom of of, of expression. We want them to have opinions. We want them to be, you know, to be personalities. Of course, what ultimately matters is the the lap time that they generate. Um, But, uh, you know, out of the car particularly in the role as a role as a world champion. Um, it's you know, Everybody within the, the motorsport fraternity, is, it's the highest position you can achieve in sports. And, and with that goes a, uh, you know, a, a responsibility as well of how you conduct yourself. Uh, and Drive to Survive has really created a platform for these young guys as well. I mean, it's created a platform for everybody in the sport. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the U.S., well, I've got I've got friends that are waking up at three in the morning in the US to yep. you know to tune into Bahrain or or Melbourne. I mean it's been a profound game changer there. Well, it has been exactly that. It's been a game changer. What it's done is it's it's brought the personalities to life of who are these drivers? You know these guys that drive these remarkable machines that are um, closed away crash helmets, and so suddenly it's brought their personalities, their journeys. To uh, to life and some of the other scientists, be it team principals or whatever, you know, in the in the sport to life, and it's not just focused on the front of the field. It's covered the entirety of the different you know journeys that the different drivers and teams you know on throughout the field. And I think it's came at a time, particularly during lockdown, where people were in their homes watching content, and suddenly, boom, this stood out, and and the transformation that it's had in particularly the U.S., particularly the demographic of who is following One. It's a so much younger audience, a much more female audience than we've ever had before, that this entire new wave of fan base has come into the sport. And, you know, now we have three races in the U.S. There's many more cities that want races there. You know, we're going to be racing down the Strip in Las Vegas in November on a Saturday night. That five years ago would have been uncomprehensible. Um, and it, but it's not just the US, I think it's globally the sport is in now a position that it's never, never been in where it's, um, you know, brought in a whole new fan base and it's drive to survive is very much the soapbox rise, like the Kardashians on wheels, basically, um, of uh, what goes on behind the scenes. And of course, you know, there is an element of their creating a television series in the way they cut it and present it, but it's, it's done an unbelievable job for Formula One. Look, no, I'm sure even for diehard fans, there, there's probably little or no recognition of what your job entails away from the field of play. Uh, and when I mean the field of play, I mean, you know, off the track. Yeah. I mean, you've got everything from, you know, protecting the brand, you've got the commercial deals, you've got engineering design, you've got testing, I mean... I, I hate things, but actually the media, like the weather is always with you. Uh, I'm guessing Drive to Survive is yet another commitment though, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, is it time consuming or do you, or just after a time, you just get used to the fact the guys are around and sometimes they're going to catch something that is worthy of, of the t v sometimes it they're not I mean it, I, yeah you 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 get used to them being around because they become embedded in your environment which can be a bit dangerous sometimes it can be very dangerous, you know what tends to happen is they spend you know a large percentage of the season with us capturing, and so you relax and you forget you have a microphone on or a you know one not far away um and you get to the end of the year where the clips start to come through because what we get to see is we get to see the bits that we're in. But we don't see how they've cut it with, you know, the 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 other teams. Do you guys get any editorial control over that? The reason I'm the reason I'm asking this is actually, we are about to embark on a documentary series in athletics. So what I'm really looking for are all the do's and damages out I mean, they, we get a little bit if we say, "Look, come on, you're giving away some of the IP of of the team that technically that shots too much," or you know, really. Um, I don't want to be talking about the health of a driver or something like that, yeah then we get shoot it um, but you know you're you're limited, and then you can oh did I really call somebody to see you next tuesday um does that have to go does that have to go in um so uh so yeah, it's quite interesting when those cuttings come through um and they tend to warm you up with the softer ones, and then as they get in towards the end of the process, drop the uh you know, uh, drop the more contentious ones in. Uh, look, I, I do have to talk about the end, the tumultuous end to uh, the 2021 season. Yeah, uh, but I'm interested... Look, I'm, you, you, you made your position very clear, and that's, you know, that that's that, on the record. What I'm interested in is what... It, you obviously had to respond publicly... What is it that you said to the garage, to the teams internally? Because that in itself is quite a twin challenge for anybody in a leadership role that's got the media on top of the story. You've got to make a judgment because I know I've, I've read and I absolutely agree with you that leadership, sadly, does always start at the top. Your body language in an organisation when the organisation is under stress is really important because if they see you stressed, then that tends to sort of, third of me, it is percolate through the whole organization. I'm fascinated in what your private conversation to those te- the teams were in the middle of that tumult. Well, I think there was, there was before the race where I spoke with the team. I said, look, you guys, whatever happens today, I've done an amazing, amazing job. and I want you to go out there and enjoy it and give your best. And whatever, whatever comes out of the day, you know, we'll, will take now, um, obviously, you know, 21 was, was contentious, but the team did nothing wrong. Um, and we delivered on that day, we took the risks, we made the right calls. Uh, we got the strategy, right. And, and to win that world championship, you know, for the first time after you know, seven, uh, long years. It's a hell of a achievement, and I didn't want that to be diminished by any of the noise that was going on. So it was a question that you could be incredibly proud. It's not just about one race. It's about a nine-month championship and fight that has its ebbs and flows over the course of the season. Um, and so it was in- incredibly important as a team to go out and celebrate success and enjoy success so that night we uh we did exactly that and and we celebrated the success that we that we'd had um and and of course you hadn't been able to do that through COVID. so it was the first time we could literally get everybody together have a drink celebrate and of course everybody then got bloody COVID um after the party and and, and christmas was a write-off but to have that moment and to share that moment and then to share it with the team when you get back um and the, the joy in, in people's faces because you know formula 1 is such a demanding business it's not a 9 to 5 job it's uh you know you get out what you what you put in and on that day um you know decisions were made by the referee um and we made the right calls um mercedes didn't they didn't stop their driver they they left him out on a set of 45 year old 45 uh, lap old tires and and we grabbed our chance and we took it and we won the race and we won the championship and and we we are you know, incredibly proud of that. Now, um, whatever contentiousness there was, uh, uh, you know, surrounding that, um, obviously people have opinions and that and they're always going to be, uh, you know, opinions. But for us, uh, you know, we'd achieved our goal of of winning the world championship. Did you feel slightly let down by the way that it played out to the end? Slightly, because I felt that that... So much was made about it that, that Max is uh, actually the way he'd driven that year and some of Herculean battles. But actually what we'd witnessed that season was probably the best year of Formula One racing I think has probably ever seen in its 70-year history where we had two drivers at the top of their game going at it like heavyweight boxers weekend after weekend from the first race all the way to that last race in, in, in Abu Dhabi. And I think it's, only with time that we'll look back on that season and think, wow, that was what we actually witnessed was something very, very special. Uh, I, I, I'm interested in how you handle the media circus because, actually, it, it's you've got 24 races a season now. You've got them with you pretty much night and day. I mean, they travel around in a pack. Do you, how, I, I'm interested in the management of that because... You know, both sports, you see them, they disappear. You might see yeah. them again a month or two later, uh, you know, on the big high days and holidays. But I'm guessing yeah. they're, they're there all the time. Is that, that that in itself is a, is a huge management exercise, isn't it? It is. And, you know, they have a presence a media business that, that, that we are at the end of the day. And, of course, um, you know, you get you get partisan views, you get our, uh, you know, different preferences for different drivers or different teams, um, you yeah, know, obviously within within the media. But it's a matter of you know, trying to work, uh, you know, with them. And and it's telling them what you want to tell them. Well, there's it, not an obligation to tell them everything. Um, and, and I think sometimes there's an expectation in the world that we live in that everything should be accessible all of the time. And I think, you know, sometimes... Um, you know answer and my view has been always been answer the question you wanna answer rather than the question that they're asking um and um uh, you know it served me reasonably reasonably well over the years, but I think that it's it's important to find that that balance because we are a media business we do have to give uh we do have to give access, and of course you know the world of digital media um opinions can be made. You know very very quickly every you're judged on almost every move that you make in this business um now as a driver as a as a team principal or as a you know as a as a team so it's finding obviously a a, a relationship with the media and for me uh honesty has always been um a key element and i'd say like, i call it as i see it and sometimes that that can be viewed as controversial or not but i will always defend my team and any individual within my team because I see that as is my job is my responsibility whether that's a, a driver a technician an engineer or even a uh, you know a financial accountant you you, you built look I think it's pretty clear for for anybody to see that you've built uh, one of the most advanced pioneering you know technology companies in the world uh, and what you are now touching is, is extraordinary. I mean, you've got some of the smartest people on the planet uh, in support and pursuit of, of, of that excellence. I know it's been an often quoted observation, which was Lewis Hampton, where it's, it's, just, a, it's just a drinks company. I, I've noticed of late that he has actually conceded that you have actually designed the fastest car probably yeah. in history. But do you feel that Red Bull has got the just um, recognition uh, off the back of what you've achieved? Or do you think there's always that element of, well, it's, it's a sort of, it's still a dream brand? Well, I think that recognition starts to change with, with time. And of course, you know, we're up against some iconic brands and a lot of automotive OEM uh, you know, and teams and at companies, and Red Bull is a, an energy drink that we are 100% subsidiary of. But I think what it demonstrates is that it's a people sport, and it's it's down to the people, it's down to the culture, down to the um, the, the collective way that a team works, and that applies for the next challenge that we have for 2026, where we we've now insanely taken on um, the challenge of building our own and uh, designing and manufacturing our own engine. Now, again, you could apply, well, what does an energy drinks company know about designing and building engines to compete against Mercedes and Ferrari and Audi and Reto and so on? But for for us, it's exactly the same principles of it's about getting the right group of people together, having the right culture, having the right targets, um, the right tools and facilities and working, you know, as a group, as a team. And, um, you know, that way anything is achievable. One of the other agendas that... You know, certainly wasn't there when you were building Arden and arguably actually was still very much in the infancy when you went to Red Bull is the whole ESG agenda. You know, inclusivity, diversity, yep. ec- the you know, e- ecological concern. Um The, the four in a one, actually, I would argue is has been in many respects well ahead of the curve. Uh it implementing you know best practice around this, but it's still you know for some it still has that gas guzzling um reputation yes. uh, although you know it, it it is ahead of the curve. where is the balance between what you're doing and the continual addition of races because that also must put you know i i know i i think point six percent of of emissions is coming through the exhaust pipe. The rest, you know, is obviously transport, travel, travel food, all these, you know, the the power elements and all that. That that's that's a big challenge out there that you didn't have even ten years ago in terms of public perception. No, absolutely. But I think if you if you look even at today's cars, I mean, their emissions over a complete Grand season, one car has less emissions than a than a cow. Um, um, so so the cars are. You know, the technology that we're pioneering is absolutely cutting edge. And as we head into this new generation of engines with fully sustainable fuels, 50% um, uh, of the power will come from from you know battery cell technology as, as, as the ultimate hybrids. It's the support network, it's the rent, it's the aircraft travel um, that is an everyday problem for everyone. And I think if Formula One can start to shine a light on some of the technologies through sustainable fuels demonstrating that, you know, we're able to achieve the same power as with, with uh, fossil fuels, for example. Um, I, I think One can be a, a testbed for that. And I think again, with guarding, you know, the whole d uh, agenda, when I first came into the sport, um, you know, it was a very white male dominated, you know, particularly team. Um, you know, and the the, the the females were working the support functions and, um, uh, you know, and so on. Now, if I look at how the team is evolving and continuing to evolve, and particularly as more, um, you know, girls and, 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 and women become interested in Formula one it's just becoming ever more inclusive. I mean, it's, it's 40% of the fan base now, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And we're seeing that start to reflect in, in the interesting in you know the graduate schemes that we have the apprenticeships that we have um and and you know initiatives um like our Red Bull Academy which is about nurturing young um uh, you know talent irrelevant of 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 background um you, you know race or, race or ethnicity and i think that um you know we're really starting to see a much more diverse group we're seeing a uh you know a lot more diversity in the engineering functions in 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 the key engine you know nearer functions of how we're designing the cars, how we're manufacturing the cars, how we're operating, and particularly with the startup business that we have with Red Bull Powertrains. Again, um, you know, it's great to see how diverse, you know, that is that is coming in the uh business alone now. We have 45 different nationalities that we that we employ within the business. We have an ever-growing presence of a lot of females coming into the sport in 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 engineering functions as well. It's been nearly 50 years since we saw a woman drive in F1. I'm digging deeper. I think it was Davina Glitzer who actually made a, 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 a number of appearances. Uh, we don't have the W Series anymore. We've got the, the F1 Academy in place. Is it going to be another 50 years or do you think, the the, the work that's being done certainly through uh, teams like Red Bull. Do you think that's going to close the gap? I think it will, and I think as more um, you know girls get involved in the sport at the grassroots level, uh, then then that pool will just get bigger. We we think for a junior driver to go from from the moment they leave casting to Formula One, if, if you've got one with real talent, can be done within five years. So theoretically, if we have some talented so sixteen year olds started to come through, or, or, or younger. Um, you know, conceivably within a five year period, um, you know, we could see a competitive female, um, you know, former One driver. And um, uh, you know, through just the popularity of the sport and it becoming more inclusive and getting getting more girls involved at the grassroots level, that is just going to create a bigger pool of talent that will that will come through the different uh, the different categories. How close to capacity is F1 when you look at the number of races and the number of cities that are now, you know, elbowing there or wanting to elbow their way to the table? Look, we're at it. I mean, 23 races is is a grueling schedule for, you know, everybody that's on the travelling team and, and, and the support team. Um, but then they come up with a race and they say, well, look, um, how do you fancy Las Vegas on a Saturday night down the Strip? Um, you know, you are you are happy to add that one? And it's like, well, okay, look, okay, we'll go. Sure, we'll go to Vegas. And that's the problem. They keep coming up with these great venues um, and, and that are very difficult to say no to. And you don't want to let go of the historic ones like a Silverstone or a Monza or a Spa or, or a Monaco. So then you end up with this calendar that just, just, just becomes bigger and bigger. But I think we are at the point now of saturation. I think, and it's like every good book has so many chapters in it. I think we're now at the maximum amount of chapters and and maybe we need to revisit some of the existing um, circuits to say, well, do we need to be there every year? Um, you know, should there be a, a rotation? Um, but I think 23 races is, is right on the limits. How do you insulate yourself from the, that craziness? I mean, what, what do you do to switch off? And, and I'm, I'm interested in your work-life balance because, you know, I'm, I'm sensing there is a tinge of workaholic here uh what what you know how do you manage that uh, that balance because i'm sure you're encouraging other people in the organization to you know look after themselves look after their families what what are the tips that you would give young leaders coming through well look it's for me it's a marathon it's not a sprint and i think that you know i have a young family and what i've learned um, is that it, it is, you know, all consuming and, you know, Formula one, um, like any competitive sport or business, it can take over your life if you, if you allow it to, and it's to have the discipline that when you, you know, family time is precious is to be present. Um, so, you know, to leave, uh, leave the phone, um, you know, to one side so that when I'm spending time with the family that when I, you know, get home, usually, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the evening hopefully just in time to see the children before they go to, um, you know, they go to sleep. Um, and that to be disciplined in, in my time, if I'm, if I'm working, you know, 14, 16 hour days every day, you can't be effective. You can't be efficient. So therefore my downtime, my switch off time is, is, you know, it is with the family and, um, you know, formula one, you have to remember, we're not saving lives, you know, we're an entertainment business. And I think what I've learned over the years is to, You know, worry about the things that you can control, not the what things that you can't, because otherwise they, yeah, it consumes you. Um, And uh, you know, I'm fortunate to have a very supportive wife who understands the sort of the pressure of having to having to deliver. Um, And sometimes that can be also quite a lonely, lonely place. You know, the higher you go, the lonelier it lonelier it gets. But um, the smaller uh, the window, the smaller the windows become. As somebody once said to me. Exactly, exactly. also reminds me that a pad on the back is six inches from a kick up the arse. Um, so, uh, and that keeps you keeps you grounded. And I think that you know, for me, family time, getting back to the base, as I grew up as a kid, you know, teaching my son to ride a bike, you know, last weekend, they're important things that, that you have to do. I don't want him uh, or my daughters to, to, you know, to miss out on that. So uh, it's fighting and it's being disciplined enough to have that balance. And horses? Horses? Oh, Christ. Uh, well, I, yeah, it's one of those things that, that lockdown, you know, did a lot for a lot of people. Um, and it, <laughs> unfortunately, being in the same place for a for a period of time, it reintroduced me to something I'd done as a kid, which was horse riding. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed it and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and my wife's, you know, super keen on horses. And somehow we've ended up now with... Um, you had a win at Newbury the other yeah, day. We, yeah, we've got we, a couple we... of racehorses now, or three horses now. Uh, we've got an Evergreen fleet. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, we, we have this one horse that we named after one of our songs. And it just keeps winning. Um, and uh, it's won four of its last five races. And then we sort of took it to, only a, to a low level of point of pointing. And then we took it to a race under rules at Newbury with zero expectation. And it won that as well. Um, so now it's off to Cheltenham uh, for its finals in uh, the weekend that I'm in um, Miami. So I will be uh, keeping in a close eye on his progress in between the two practice sessions. That's coronation weekend. It is. Yes. Well, on the Friday, it's running uh, in, in the evening race at, uh, at, at Cheltenham. So, uh, so the problem is people here keep, because that keeps winning. Uh, they keep saying, well, when's your horse running again? We want to put some money on it. I don't want to be responsible for that. I had Bernie Ecklund maybe yesterday say, when's your horse running again? Yeah. <laughs> Winning is a high-class problem, Christian, as you know. Winning, you know, there's no substitute for it. The feeling that it gives you, whether it's a horse race, a motor race, a running race, um, you know, there's, it, it's, it, it, it's an adrenaline thing, it's, and it's addicted. Long may the addiction survive. And good luck for the rest of the season, Christian. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you very much. It's been great. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM.